From Square Two, this is What's Wrong With Revenue. I'm Mike Lieberman, CEO at Square Two, and along with my longtime friend, Eric Kalis, and co-founder at Square Two and six-time entrepreneur, Eric and I will answer the question CEOs have every single day, what's wrong with revenue? You can be part of the Livecast show where we'll answer your questions every Wednesday at 4 p.m. Eastern, or catch the show on demand on YouTube and on all your favorite podcast networks. Also check out all our audio and video content on Square2 Plus at the square2marketing.com website. Enjoy the show. Hey everybody, welcome to episode five of What's Wrong With Revenue. I'm Mike Lieberman, CEO and Chief Revenue Scientist at Square Two. I'm joined by my longtime friend and partner and co-host of the weekly show, Eric Kalis. Eric, say hi to everybody. Hello, everybody. Today, we're going to be talking about one of the many challenges associated with revenue growth, why there's no awareness of the prospect's buyer journey. So again, you can get access to the show on our website. At the bottom of our website, there's a link to What's Wrong With Revenue. All the shows are now posted there. As uh, one of our viewers mentioned to me today, he enjoys checking out the show post livecast on YouTube. So you can go to YouTube and find the Square Two Marketing channel. All of the episodes are posted there where you can get them at your viewing pleasure. We are also now on iTunes and all of the other major podcast publish, publication platforms. So there's really no excuse for you not being able to find the What's Wrong with Revenue show somewhere that is convenient for you. So today we're going to talk a little bit about this buyer journey concept and why it's so critical to driving revenue. And I think where I'd like to start is if you're looking at digital transformation at your company, if you're wondering why revenue is not consistently going up and to the right every single month, then sometimes I think it's a challenge for CEOs to know where to start. Where do I start with this problem? It seems very all-encompassing. It seems very complicated. You know, might have tentacles into marketing, sales, customer service, company strategy, it can become overwhelming. And where I'd like to start the conversation today is the buyer journey is a really a great place to start. Why? Because so many companies that Eric and I meet and start working with are trying to tackle their challenges from an internal perspective, meaning they're very comfortable talking about themselves they're very comfortable talking about what they do, how long they've been doing it, why they do it, who's doing it for them, the products and services they sell, which makes sense. We all are super comfortable talking about ourselves. And when it comes to trying to learn about other people, it's a, we're all a little less comfortable at that. And I think the same works for businesses. So Eric, I'm going to ask you just to talk a little bit about why, not why, but how does understanding the prospect journey, the prospect buyer's journey get companies focused in the right area? How does it get them thinking more about their prospects and what their prospects are thinking, feeling, looking for so that they can try to crack the code on, on driving revenue? 
Well, I could talk for quite a bit about this topic because it's just as exciting as it is frustrating. I'll start my commentary by talking about this local florist that I pop into twice a month to buy my wife some flowers. It happens to be located a half a block from my house, so it's very convenient for me. But every time I go in, I see the box. So what do I mean by the box? There has been a box of assorted ribbons and little things right in the middle of the showroom, which isn't really a showroom. It's just a place where you stand while you're waiting for your flowers. And it's been there for months. And the reason I mention it is because every time I go and I'm like, I wonder if that box is still there. And the owners of that flower shop cannot see the box. The box is not part of their vision. They block it out. Why? because they can't see the experience that I'm having as a florist customer through my eyes. If they got everybody in the florist shop, which is about three or four people outside on the sidewalk, and they said, okay, let's enter the store as if we wanna buy something and let's point out all the things we see. They would immediately say, well, wait a minute, what's this box sitting here? And someone would say, well, I put that there six months ago, and that's where I collect up all the pieces of ribbon that we don't want to throw away. And then someone else says, well, I thought that box was for collecting the plastic things that hold the little thank you cards or I love you cards that we put in the flowers. And now all of a sudden it becomes visible. When you're in the day-to-day -day execution, it's very, very hard to stop, pivot, and stand in the shoes of the prospects and just ask yourself, what are they experiencing? Mike, I fully expect to see that box when I go back next time. My wife's birthday is next week. I will be getting some flowers because I know they're never doing that task. And what typically happens is companies won't stop and say, well, let's flip the table. Let's go through our own process and see what we see. What is it like? I had a, a prospective client about a week ago, and they told me that they have a little problem with their sales team, that the sales team insists on talking to every single person. And they're so busy because they insisted upon that because their compensation plan depended on closing all those customers that it provided one, a slowdown in closing sales and two, a very rocky and friction filled. Because what happens is if the salesperson has to talk to them and they're busy, now they can't talk to them for a week or so, as opposed to I have an opening in two hours from now, can we chat then, which would obviously keep the uh, machine running. And the reason is, is the ownership of that company, they can't see these bumps in the road, these obstacles that they're placing in the order, uh, in order for a customer to place an order. And because they can't see it, they can't eliminate it, they can't work on it, they can't streamline it and they're kind of stuck in the place they are today. So I would think if anything comes out of our conversation today, it's encouraging the CEOs and leadership team members on this meeting to simply stop, stand in the shoes of the prospect and go through their own buyer's journey to at least see and feel what it's like to buy from their own companies. I think that is good advice. I think it's hard for companies to to step outside of their own reality and, and look at their businesses from their customer's perspective or their prospect's perspective. But still, I think a framework would be helpful to organize that buyer journey so that some action can be taken because it's, it's really kind of massive, right? Like it starts when someone might mention a company to you like, oh, you should check these guys out. That's actually the very first place a lot of these experiences start. It may then move into me visiting their website and clicking around a little bit. I might fill out a form and, and expect to hear from them via email. And eventually, 
I might come back and look around a little more. And, and if what they say is interesting to me and I'm actually a, a viable prospect, I might ask to talk to a sales rep. And those conversations with sales could be three, four, eight touches. It could be months of back and forth with the sales rep, depending on what you might be buying. Um, eventually, I decide this is a good fit, purchase something. Now I'm having experiences with their customer service team over the course of many months. Like there are a lot of, there are a lot of touch points. So um, one of the things I'd like to talk a little bit about is what a prospect buyer journey might look like and how we could potentially organize this for our subscribers, listeners, watchers. I wish we had a better way to just refer to all these people in general, but um, so that they can organize it themselves and they can have a little framework that they could take back to their companies to start to look at this from a more objective perspective. And by the way, we've been doing this for a long time and I want to just let everybody know that this is really the only way to start looking at redesigning these experiences is to understand the prospect's buyer journey, to map it out, to identify all of the individual touch points along the way and start working on those to create a better, more remarkable experience. And there are so many touch points that go neglected by companies every single day, just because they don't think they're significant. Like even how you talk uh, send the invoice to the client is a potential touch point. How you <clears throat> alert them that their product is shipped and, and delivery is expected. There are <clears throat> so many opportunities to upgrade the communication and upgrade the experience. So I have a uh, graphic that I would like to share. It's, it's what we use with our prospects to help everybody understand um, what the prospect journey looks like. And I have many screens running here. So let's make sure I can do this properly. I'm going to share my screen and I'm going to show you a, an image of a buyer journey. Can you, you can see my screen now, right? Um, yes, I can. Okay. So what you should be seeing now is the cyclonic buyer journey. This is the buyer journey map that Eric and I created to just help our clients drill down and understand the individual stages in a traditional prospect buyer journey. Now, this is much different than what you might have been expecting, which could look something like the traditional sales funnel that has a couple of stages where magically prospects are supposed to come in at the top and customers are supposed to magically fall out at the bottom. That was created in 1890. I'm pretty sure that's outdated at this point. And we use this cyclone metaphor or this hurricane metaphor because that's really how a lot of people feel when they're trying to make a purchase decision. There's a lot of information coming at them via the internet, via advertising, via salespeople, via friends, via peers, via uh, uh, colleagues. It, it can be overwhelming when you're trying to make a complex purchase decision and really good marketing, really good sales, and really good service is designed to move people through these different stages in a very organized and thoughtful way. So, Eric, um, 
I, I took the opportunity to kind of pull these out a little bit so we could talk about them for a few minutes each. I don't want to go into too much detail here, but you know, maybe you could do a couple, then I'll do a couple and just very quickly, like a minute or two, just explain to everybody what the different stages are and how they can use these to start to map out the prospect journey. Does that make sense? It sure does. I'm glad to take a crack at the first couple, but I want to sure. really highlight because you're right. This is a large undertaking to go through the journey that someone goes on to become a client at your company that you have to break it into three buckets, marketing, sales, and customer service, right? So marketing introduces them to your company, sales uh, starts to do business with them and services ongoing delivery, cross sell, upsell. So maybe if you wanna tackle one of the three to begin with and experience that, maybe it breaks it into a bite-sized chunk. But in the entire journey through marketing, sales and service, you have eight stages. I'll take the first three. How's that, Mike, okay? That'd be great, yeah. So in the pre-awareness stage, which is the first stage, you don't even know you have a problem. You don't even know that there's vendors out there that can solve that problem for you, and that's a mistake. So what typically happens, and I'll give you a great example, is uh, one of our clients does automation of machinery. So they'll come into your factory and they'll automate a lot of things that uh, you're now currently doing manually. Not that anybody loses their job, but it just increases production. Sometimes they have a big challenge because the people that are running the plants, as long as they have some kind of throughput, don't even know that they could have 2x or 3x to throughput. So they're not even aware that automation could help them. And that was a big challenge for our marketing campaign because we had to educate them as to why they even should be thinking that they have a problem or they could be doing better. This is a tough stage because they're not looking for you at this point because they're not aware. And this is a great time to use tactics to educate people, introduce yourselves to them, and maybe poke at their emotion that they could be doing twice the amount of production in their manufacturing facility. The next stage is awareness. This is a lot easier because people are aware they have a problem. Using the same um, uh, example of the uh, manufacturing automation company, when I keep having my people call out sick or I'm down a few employees because of COVID and I can't keep up with my production quotas, now I'm aware I have a problem and I start looking for solutions. That could be additional human resources to run my machines, or it could be automation, or it could be outsourcing altogether. I have other options. I'm aware I have a problem though, and now I start looking. And in the third stage, because I have this problem, I'm starting to educate myself on what I can do about that. The typical education is WebMD. Oh, my thumb hurts. Let me go on WebMD, at WebMD and learn everything I can about uh, thumb pain. Now I have all sorts of things that are presented to me and it's up to me to kind of sift through all that information and figure out, well, what should I do? So those are the first three, Mike. Why don't you take the next three and I'll finish up. Sure. So just to add on to what Eric said, people in the awareness stage, they're not proactive. They're reactive. Something might cross their desk. Oh yeah, I was thinking about that. Let me take a look at that. Something might cross their email transom. Oh yeah, let me, let me look at that. When they're in education, they're proactive. They've taken it upon themselves to start getting educated about a particular topic. When they move to consideration, they've decided that they're going to do something, but they might not be sure exactly what to do yet. In, in the agency world, this is very common. Companies decide that they need help with marketing, but they're not sure whether to hire in-house or to hire an agency. So they know they have pain. They've educated themselves. They know they need to fix it, but they're still considering their alternatives, in-house or agency. 
when they get to the evaluation stage, they've made a decision. I'm going to hire an agency. I don't want to go through the pain of hiring somebody. I actually think it's cheaper to hire an agency. So I'm now going to evaluate two or three agencies or 10 agencies. They're going to go through that evaluation process. You can also see that we've shifted from marketing who handles most of the lift in awareness, education, and consideration to sales who handles almost all of the lift in evaluation, rationalization, and decision. So evaluation is typically where the handoff from marketing to sales picks up. And in order for the buyer to finish their buyer journey, they actually need to talk to sales. So they might want to know how much it would cost to work with an agency. They need to talk to sales. They might want to know who they're going to be working with at the agency, how long the agency, you know, what does the agency really excel at? They need to talk to someone there. So that's usually where sales picks it up. And the prospect has more or less started to narrow how they're planning on fixing this issue. And then when they get to rationalization, they've decided the agency that they want to work with just to stick with our scenario here, but they have some very specific questions. What are the payment terms? How much exactly is it going to cost? What kind of results can I expect? How long are these results going to take? I want to talk to the actual people I'm going to be working with. Questions that come up when they've already more or less decided where they want to go, but now they want to check some of the boxes that just finalize their decision-making process. And Eric, you can wrap up the decision and delivery side of things for us. Yeah, decision, that's all sales, right? Let's talk about uh, what it's like to work with me. Uh, uh, sorry, work with my agency. Uh, let's give you a agreement. Let's work on the statement of work, kickoff dates, all of those things. So sales handles like uh, getting them over the finish line. And that stage is obviously uh, very much sales oriented, but then here's where a lot of companies fall down. They close the deal and then they wash their hands of it. I got a new client. We'll just deal, uh, sell them what we sold them, right? But that actually is simply the beginning of the relationship. Now you go on to the eighth cyclone in the uh, cyclonic buyer's journey, which we call delivery. And it's important for the customer service team to constantly be communicating, probing for more opportunities where they could sell more product, enhance the orders, take away from the other competitors that are maybe also fulfilling some of those. And that's where the uh, upsell and cross-sell becomes powerful in the delivery stage. So this is a ongoing exercise. Now, Mike, you and I shared eight different steps so that's why it becomes a bit arduous sometimes for companies to go through that process and look for where all the touch points are, where there might be some friction that slows it down, where people might be dropping off and maybe checking out another competitor. But that's the hard work that's necessary in order to make your company stand out amongst the rest. And look, we talk all the time as humans about, oh, I heard about this cool company. They do dot, dot, dot. When you've achieved an amazing buyer's journey, people are more than happy to be goodwill ambassadors for your company and tell your story all over town. I'm a big fan of Warby Parker. That's where I get my glasses. Did you know that they'll ship you five frames at home free of charge that you could try on at your mirror in your bedroom, decide what you like, and then send them back with a pre-addressed uh, return label? That's remarkable and a great part of the journey if I happen not to live down the block from a Warby Parker uh, showroom. So like they thought about, well, let's take friction out of it. If people can't get to our showroom, let's just ship them five frames that they've decided to choose online. And then we'll throw a label in there so they don't even have to pay for it to come back. We'll be their best friend. That's a big gutsy decision because that has a lot of expense in the sales process. But yet they selected to do that because it would, one, make them remarkable and two, drive uh, top line revenue.
Yeah. And last but not least, you know, you can see that this is a cycle. The better you are at creating these little cyclonic experiences and making it easy for your prospects, the faster they all spin individually and the faster the entire cycle spins. And honestly, this is how you get revenue to grow by making sure all of these experiences are easy, frictionless and positive and remarkable for prospects and clients. So this whole thing spilled, uh, spins much quicker. Now I'm going to hop out of this and um, answer, answer some questions. Uh, again, if you are interested in asking us questions, you can chat us right now live, but you can also go to the what's wrong with revenue page on our website and submit questions in advance. So we have a couple questions, Eric. Let's deal with those. I'm going to stop the share. Let's deal with those and uh, see if we can help some people who uh, asked for some specific help. So, okay. So this question is from Don in California. Everything I've seen has three or four stages of the buyer journey. How come you guys have eight? Is it overcomplicating this? So Eric, take, take a crack at this. Why, why did we decide to pick eight stages, is it overcomplicating it? And what's the difference with some of the other buyer journey models uh, that, that we've seen out there? Well, I'm, of course, eight is more than three in the traditional sales funnel. So yes, it's more complicated. I don't know about overcomplicated though, because when that original three-step sales funnel was created in 1890, we didn't have one very specific thing and that's called the internet. The internet allows people to do all sorts of research on their own, which means that it changed buyer behavior. Pre-internet, if you wanted to find out about a product or service, you had to go to the company where it was and talk to a salesperson. So that step was condensed into just the top of funnel. I'm out there doing research. So we broke it into more granular stages by simply observing the way that people buy and then um, really designating each stage as its own stepping stone to the final sale. And when you're thinking about it, um, you know, in, in our uh, book, Smash the Funnel, we talk about the gentleman who wants to buy a car for their new driver team, right? Or their teen new driver. So they think that they're going to buy a new car. They saw some ads in the newspaper. They saw it on TV, $399 for a new Nissan. This will be perfect for my kid. And then they start to go through some of the steps. And then they realize, well, wait a minute, there's other options out there. When I went to the Nissan dealership, I saw some really nice used cars and they would be cheaper. Oh no, what about that? Then I started going online and going to Consumer Reports and I thought I wanted a Nissan, but now I'm concerned about the safety of my teen new driver. So maybe I'll go with a Volvo because they talk about safety a lot. Yes, I'm gonna do a Volvo. Then I go out to dinner with my brother-in-law. He says, Volvos, they break down all the time. Don't get one of those. And now I'm like, ah, I got to go back three stages and then start my search over. So while the eight might be more complicated than the three, it actually more accurately reflects the way people buy. And they're going in and out. And it's not very linear, like the original model says. It's all over the place. So I think if you want to simplify it, Great, start with three stages and master those. But if you really want to get down to the granular details of how people buy, eight is the right number. Yeah, and I think the next question I want to get to is going to also help answer for, for Don why, why we picked more stages than less. Um, so um, Janet in Chicago writes, I get the buyer journey concept, but what would I do in my company to map out all of the 
stages of the prospect and customer buyer journey? And I think the answer to why we came up with eight and answering one of our objectives for today's um, uh, show, how do you identify all those touch points in that journey? I think you need a more granular view like this to map out all those touch points. And I think when you, when you, when you think about it, and I'll go through it with you to model, model it a little bit, if you think about it, the prospects are changing their perspective in each of those stages. So the touch points need to change also. And, and when you're only looking at three, like awareness, um, consideration and, and purchase, like it's just not granular enough to design your, your marketing and sales execution and your customer service execution for those three stages, because there's really so much that's different at each of the eight stages. So let me just give you some examples of how you, you would match out touch, map out touch points at, at some of the different stages. So we talked a little bit about pre-awareness. So the people who you want to target with your marketing campaigns, and everyone knows this, you know, we want to attract companies with a thousand or more employees in the manufacturing space who purchase this product in the Midwest. Okay. And, I, and in those uh, companies, I want to talk to the COO. Okay, great. Perfectly good set of targets, right? A lot of those people don't know that they have a problem. So you can't talk to them the same way you would about someone who knows they have a problem. You have to uncover that pain for them. You have to introduce them to concepts that they might not be aware of. The communication is going to be radically different to those people than the people that are already looking around and understand the, the kind of pain and challenges they're having in their company already. So the outreach that sales is going to do is going to be different. The, the support for those sales outreaches that marketing is going to provide are going to be different for people that you're trying to get engaged when they don't even know that they have a problem yet, okay? So that's one really clear example. The other example is uh, the difference between uh, awareness and, and maybe consideration, right? So awareness, they know they have a problem, but they're not ready to take action yet. They're not even proactively looking around. So here's where you have to be really clear about getting their attention because you're competing with all the other people who are trying to get their attention. And some of those may have nothing to do with you. They may be trying to talk about something completely different from what you do. It's not just your competition. It's everyone that's trying to get their attention. So you have to have a very emotional and compelling message to grab their attention, right? So they're aware you have to grab their attention and you have to have the assets to kind of pull them into your world so you can move them into that proactive education stage. That's a whole nother set of tactics that will be required to have them make that transition from awareness to education. And when they're in consideration, again, like they're looking at a couple of different options. So they now know they have an issue and they want to solve it. They've agreed that as a company, they want to solve it, but they're still looking at different alternatives. So your content and your communication and your stories to them are going to be completely different. So the stages help you organize those thoughts and organize how you would potentially communicate to those people based on where they are in their buyer journey. And let me give you one more really tactical idea that you can consider 
and then I'll, I'll let Eric add some color commentary if you'd like to. One of the best ways to do this, and this is what we do with our clients, is to start thinking about the kinds of questions prospects ask at each of these stages. So anyone that's been in sales knows that when you first talk to someone who's interested in doing business with you, they have a certain set of questions. And as they get to know you a little bit better and they progress in their buyer journey a little bit, they start asking a different set of questions. And as they've started to get connected with you and maybe they like you a little bit better and they trust you a little bit better, they're asking an even third set of questions. And when they get to the very end where you think they're about to hire you, they're asking even more different questions. And by understanding the progressions of those questions, you can really create some very compelling tools and some very compelling stories that allow you to proactively answer those questions before they even ask you. And I, I think by mapping those questions out and looking at the, the, the touches that your company is having, having with prospects across those eight different stages, a lot of lights are going to go off. And my very first comment was, well, where do I start with this digital transformation project? It's so complicated. By going through that exercise, you'll start to see, oh, all right, yeah, they do ask that question. Now we actually have something that we can give them to answer that question. And by answering that question proactively, you're forming a better relationship with that prospect that moves them through that stage much quicker and, and much more efficiently. So, you know, this is an easy way to think about it. It's an easy way to break it down. It's an easy way to go through those series of exercises to really start to uncover some of this information. So you can start to build in the programs and tactics that help your team better arm both your marketing execution and your sales execution and your customer service execution to provide that higher level of experience that your prospects and customers are now looking for. Want to add anything to that, Eric? I sure do. You know, one of my bucket list items, Mike, is to build a cabin in the woods. I've always wanted one. Uh, I, I definitely want to go and build this cabin so I could go hiking and get out of the city, blah, blah, blah. So, of course, I'm online looking at what is it, um, uh, you know, cost to build a tiny house and how do you buy land in the woods and, and some of that other stuff, right? So, this one couple has a whole business about uh, using cabins for Airbnbs. So, they sent me a free report because, of course, I downloaded a piece of content on their website that says, what do I do with my cabin when I'm not using it? And I was like, hmm, I didn't even consider that. And they gave me this really nice piece of content around how to make your vacation home into an Airbnb. Hadn't even thought of it, but you can see that that couple sat down and said, let's lay out on the kitchen table every single question someone might ask and develop a piece of content to answer that. Now, what's interesting is when I clicked through, their offer was, let us coach you for a fee on converting your house to an Airbnb, which is obviously their business. And I thought that that was really great because I'm like, wow, they already gave me a lot of content to think about before they even asked for my business. And that was, even though I don't think that they're, you know, high-end marketers, it was a simple, obvious uh, exercise that they tried to answer the questions that I had before I even knew I had them. Yeah. That's a great, great example. Thanks for sharing that. I got another question here that just recently came in while we were chatting. It says, I don't understand the pre-awareness stage. Can you help me better? Can you help better define that for me? So let me take a crack at this. So 
I think you understand that there may be people who need what you do who are not looking yet and don't understand their pain. But to try to bring it, make it a little more concrete, a lot of people these days are executing what they call account-based marketing. And these are very specific marketing tactics that are designed to go after people in the pre-awareness stage. So, you know, you could cold email, you could send um, direct mail, you could uh, call people in their office. These are old school tactics designed specifically for people in the pre-awareness stage. Like I think Eric told a story last set, uh, last episode about the two uh, people that showed up at our office and wanted to save us money on our electric bill, right? So that's a great example, right? We, we might not have even known we had a problem with our electric bill. They showed up on our door, not, knocked on it and said, hey, let me look at your electric bill. I can save you some money, right? So maybe we, we teased them a little bit about the tactic, but that's exactly what they were thinking. Like, here's a company in this office building they use electricity and they might not know that we can save them some money. So we're going to knock on their door and say, hey, give us your bill and we'll, we'll, we'll see if we can save you some money, right? So that's a really good example. Now, if you want to take that same example and translate it to some more 2021 and 2022 tactics, then it might be identifying the companies who you want to do business with, going on the LinkedIn and finding the people in those companies who are the appropriate title. So if you wanna to talk to the CEO, if you wanna to talk to the COO, if you wanna to talk to the CIO or the CTO or the director of purchasing, whoever it is you're going after, you can pretty much find those people on LinkedIn. That's usually not that big a deal. And you could attempt to connect with them on LinkedIn. And if you had some interesting content to share with them or some research or some insights that would get their attention, you could attempt to share that with them via LinkedIn and make a new connection. Once you're connected to them, you can continue the conversation in an attempt to get them engaged, meaning they're responding to you and you're having a conversation just like you would have if you knocked on their door and said, hey, I wanna to talk to you about this. And someone said, sure, come on in, let's sit down and talk. When they're engaged and you're gonna need different content to get them engaged and the content you needed to get them connected, when they're engaged, they may say, sure, email me something. And now you have their approval, their authorization to continue that conversation in a more traditional marketing oriented way, email marketing, invitations to things. So you've actually earned their attention through your connect strategy, extended their trust to you through your engage strategy. And now you're talking to them, you're continuing the conversation and trying to earn enough trust to see if you can continue to work them through their own buyer journey and present some solutions that might fit some issues that you've helped them uncover. So I think that should help you understand a little more about what people in the pre-awareness stage are, are thinking, and even more specifically, how you can leverage some marketing and sales tactics to uncover those people who are now better opportunities in sales because they may now be aware and they may have actively started to get educated and they may actually even be considering something based on your peaking their interest through those pre-awareness marketing tactics. So um, Eric, as, as, as this guy's surrogate, does that make sense the way that was explained? Well done. Okay, thank you. Um, okay, 
So let's do another question and then we'll hop into some other commentary. So, cause we have a lot of questions. I like answering questions. The delivery stage is one of the stages you talked about, but that seems like there would be more to it than that. Can you talk about how to go deeper in that phase, right? So I think what they're saying is we have seven sales and marketing stages, but only one delivery stage. So, you know, what can we talk about in that delivery stage that might make it a little more uh, actionable for people that want to drive additional touches and additional revenue and additional advocacy for their customer base? Sure. There's a million things you could do. The advantage you have in the delivery stage is we're assuming that you delivered your product or service in an acceptable manner, and now the new customer likes you. They're open to hearing more about it. We all know the old adage that it's so much easier to sell something to someone you already know than to find a new customer. And the reason being is that there's a trust factor there. Yeah, I placed my first order and everything went smoothly. Maybe there's some other stuff I could buy from this company or I can reorder my same product. I feel safe. So that's good. The challenging part is to figure out a perfect set of communication tools that are specific for your company or your industry, right? If you're uh, selling things that uh, maybe have long shelf life, well, you can't attack them every day to buy another six months worth of X. They have six months worth of X. Now you got to sell them something else. If you're uh, Amazon, well, if I sold them uh, sneakers, well, then that's easy the next day to follow up with socks because we know that they're related, right? So that would be the cross sell. The upsell also is important. Hey, I bought the basic product, but did you know that if you buy these couple of add-ons, you could really make your basic product a deluxe product? So that's something you could do. So how do you go about that? Well, the first thing to do is make sure that you have clear communication with the right person. Sometimes the buyer is different than the person who it's shipped to. So a lot of times people's database isn't accurate enough to make sure you're reflecting to the decision maker. So you want to make sure you have the right person you're speaking with, because if you don't, then you're sending all your marketing communication into a black hole and it's not going to be effective. So assuming we have the right person, let's start by asking them about their first experience. Let's keep them talking. Hey, here's a net promoter score survey based on a score of one to 10. How likely are you to provide? Now they give you a nine. That means they're good. So now we have a if then do this scenario. If they gave us a nine or a 10, then automatically send them this e email. If they gave us a two or three, route that to the customer service manager and let's pick up the phone and call them and ask them what went wrong. So at least we could try to save that customer and build the relationship back up. If they're in the middle, well, that's a whole other set of things because they just had a blah or average experience. Now we got to work harder to earn their trust and, and, and uh, business. So a series of emails, social media posts, and things like that will continue that communication. But it's important to also build that ongoing upsell and cross-sell experience with them. If they bought something for $10, we don't want to pitch them for something for $8,000. We want to kind of build up to that. Have you considered this? This is a little bit more expensive, or this is a little bit adjacent to what you bought. Are you considering that? There's a seasonality conversation, right? If I sell things that have a seasonality overlay, let's make sure that my communication is appropriate. If I send them communication for a parka sale in August, no matter what I do, I'm not going to get traction on that because I didn't time it right. So there's a lot of things around that. In addition to seasonality, there's holidays that come up, right? We're now in the month of October. We're starting to see things about the holiday season start to come. So pre-planning out what that experience would be like from the receiver's end is also critical. And as my final urging of you to do this planning for what the experience is like once you have a customer is make all your touch points remarkable. 
How many times have you uh, ordered something from a company for the first time, and then you get some kind of weird email that says like, uh, delivery X3000, and you're like, uh, what's that? You open it, even though you're not supposed to, and you see, oh, this is a notification from that company I ordered from that my product shipped as opposed to simply taking two seconds and write a subject line that says, exciting news, your product has shipped from this company, open to find out more. And then when I get into the body of email, in literally 10 minutes of work, I could turn a very blase shipping notification into something remarkable. Mike, let me tell the story of CD Baby, company that isn't around anymore because they were pre-internet and they used to sell CDs, the regular CDs that you would get in UPS and you'd pop into your CD player. Well, they could have just sent a regular ship, uh, shipping notification every time they sent an order, but they did something that sounds like this. Great news. The CD that you've selected is on its way to you. But it's a sad day here at CD Baby because our whole staff love listening to that CD and we're sad to see it go, but we're happy that it'll be in a good home. So today, our entire team went down to the shipping department, boxed up your CD in a velvet box with a gold ribbon. Then we all marched over to the uh, U.S. Post Office and shipped it to you with tracking number X392427. P.S. Please call us as soon as it arrives. We're very concerned about its uh, shipping uh, 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 condition. Now, the first thing you do when you get that shipping notification is laugh. The second thing you do is you forward it to five friends saying, check this out. This is hilarious. And that spreads the word all because they took five minutes to create a remarkable shipping notification email. And that's the encouragement I would give to you is like, make sure it's not boring or confusing. Take 10 minutes and make all these touch points exciting. I think that's really good advice. I, I also think the reason we spend much more time talking about the seven stages of the marketing and sales piece of it and the one stage of the customer piece of it is that most companies know their customers. So in a lot of cases, they don't know their prospects. So we need a little more attention to those people we don't know. But to your point, Eric, it should be relatively easy to map out the various touch points of people once they become customers. And, and kind of fun, right? It's kind of fun to bring. It should be fun. It should be fun. It should interesting. Yeah. And you should be working to make it fun for your, for your customers too, right? Again, it's about the experience. The more remarkable we can make the experience, the more they're going to talk about it. I also think that a lot of people, when it comes to customers, when it comes to marketing to customers, it's a lot about discounts. It's a lot about coupons. It's a lot about promotions. And I think that's a little misplaced also. It ought to continue to be about stories. I would like to know what other people are buying from the company that I made a purchase from and, and what they're doing with it. It's a very good chance that if I bought outdoor furniture from this company and other people are buying mosquito repellent blankets or interesting colored pillows or sh shade devices or whatever, that there's a pretty good chance that I'm also going to be interested in that. But I don't want to see take 10% off. I want to see what other people like me are doing with these products. That's how I'm going to be engaged and interested in wanting to participate in, in a similar way. And I think it's easy to send a coupon. It's easy to talk about new products. It's easy to talk about um, special promotions. It's a little harder to position your customers as the star of the show as a way to get other customers 
thinking in a similar way. So I think you're right. The person who asked this question, we do simplify the delivery stage a little bit, but it might be the most important stage. Honestly, you don't have to convince these people to buy from you. They already know, like, and trust you. Getting people to know, like, and trust you is the major objective of marketing and sales. When it comes to customers, you already have that. So lean into that more. When, when our clients ask us to help them with revenue, we almost always want to start well, what are you doing with current customers? How are you staying connected to them? How are you telling them about your business? How are you activating them so they talk about your business? And in many cases, it's not, we don't really do anything like that. So there's a very, there's a lot of low-hanging fruit there. There's a lot of interesting opportunities for you to run marketing programs to customers that will produce revenue in a very short amount of time, as opposed to trying to find people in the wilderness who, who want to pay you when they don't even know you yet. Excellent. So I want to do one more question. I want to do love it or leave it before we wrap up. So this is a good question for you, Eric. Um, it's from Jane in Toronto. Can you talk more about how sales would improve the rationalization stage? What are some actual examples of how I could upgrade this stage? So just to remind you, the rationalization stage is where people have more or less decided they want to do business with you, but they still have some very specific questions. And these are usually very detailed oriented questions. So it's a little more challenging in terms of how to upgrade this stage. Like Eric, do you have some ideas on how people could think about this particular stage? Yes, I do. And I think a lot of it is from uh, an emotional lens because they've decided that they kind of like you and they might move forward with your business, but they have some concerns. They have some questions that need to answer. So I think that a lot of this, uh, besides standing in the shoes of the prospect, is thinking about the emotional connection you can make. In the rationalization stage, I find it that, you know, being a salesperson myself, that using other customer examples really makes an emotional connection. So don't wait for someone to say, uh, yeah, I, 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 I need some exam. Go proactive. Say, you know, I really enjoyed our conversation this afternoon. It got me thinking about other clients like you who have made similar moves and here's something that I think you would enjoy. Also, understanding that we've mapped out all the stages in the rationalization stage, we're trying to make that emotional connection. We could also write a series of templated emails that would be in the voice of the company that would address the rationalization stage. So I would put together two or three of those because like we already agreed, it's going to take a little bit of back and forth at this stage to get them over the hump and ask for the agreement. So I would definitely write a couple of emails. Like one of the things that people find at this stage of getting to know us is X and we typically will educate them as to why. Uh, uh, assuming you might have some additional questions, here's a link to my calendar. Please uh, find a time that's convenient for you, and I'll be more to expand upon this. So you're being proactive, and if you think about it from the side of the fence of the prospect, they're like, gosh, these guys have thought about everything. I'm really feeling comfortable. These guys are being proactive and, and doing that. Mike, we just did that the other day with that large project we're working on. I said to myself, you know, this prospect is going to want to talk to some of our other folks before they move forward. So I selected three or four of our happy clients that are currently in-house. I touched base with them to make sure that they were willing to receive a call. And then I put together a not asked for email to the prospect saying, look, 
At this stage, a lot of people like to talk to some of our prospects. I've gone ahead and gathered a few names of customers that you can experience share with and touch base with them. They're expecting your call. Go. Now, honestly, Mike, they might not even call those folks because they didn't ask for it, but just the offer of talking to happy clients might be enough to help them rationalize that, boy, this company really is the one that I want to do business with. So I think about things on an emotional basis in the rationalization stage, trying to like get them. And you often give the example in rationalization about that sofa. I got to come to your house. You must have 20 sofas from what you, uh, those stories you tell, but you're like, I love this sofa, but will it match my other furniture? Can I handle the price? Will it fit through the doorway of my apartment? Those are the kinds of questions they're asking to now rationalize to make sure that their emotional connection is stable and they can move forward with the deal. So if I know that, I might put out a little bit of a video, how to make sure your sofa fits through the doorway. Now people are like, oh, these guys have thought of everything. Of course, I'm going to buy from them. And that's a good uh, uh, insight into the rationalization stage and how you can master it. I'm so glad you mentioned video because I think there's a very strong application of video in the rationalization stage. So you, you kind of talked about it a little bit. When people are, are trying to make a final decision, they do often, especially with large B2B complex sales, they do want to talk to references. And you know you mentioned a, a, an expedited reference process where we had some people ready to go and, and you, you offered them up proactively. But still, the prospect has to connect, they have to look at schedules, they have to get on each other's uh, calendars, like it could take a week for them to have that reference call. And that can add time to the sales cycle. One of the successful ways we've tried to drive some, some improvements in the rationalization stage is with a reference reel, where we record references on video and to Eric's point, proactively serve those before the prospect even asks for references. Something to the tune of, oh, at this point, a lot of our prospects ask for references. That can be a little clumsy. You have to talk to someone you don't know. You have to get on their calendars. You have to reach out and schedule something. In order to make this easier, here are five of our customers on video talking about what it's like to work with us, talking about the results they see received. By the way, these are the same people you would probably be connected with anyway, Take a listen to the, you know, watch the videos and then let me know if you'd still like to talk to them. It might not eliminate all of the reference back and forth and all of the friction associated with references, but in our case and in the cases where we've used this for clients, it generally takes away 50% of the reference requests, which means you're going to reduce your overall sales cycle at that stage very, very dramatically instead of a couple of weeks or a week, week and a half. You're literally handling that in a couple of minutes. So I think that's a good example of a touch point that can be upgraded to provide a better experience and the outcome it produces a shorter sales cycle. By the way, if you, all of your sales cycles are reduced by a week or two, you're going to drive more revenue, no question about it. Hey, Mike, I'll go one better. And I know customer advocacy will be a topic we'll attack later in our episodes here. But think about this experience. I'm in the rationalization stage and all of a sudden an email pops up in my inbox that says, thinking about doing business with Square 2. I am, obviously, because I'm in the middle of the sales process. I open the email and it's from a Square 2 client saying, Hey, Mike and Eric told me you were interested about doing business with them. I just couldn't contain my enthusiasm and had to drop you an email that says they're the best thing since sliced bread. Don't even think about it. Hire them. 
that would be even more remarkable, right? Because we're being not only proactive, but something that comes out of left field that they haven't even heard about before. So there's different ways to brainstorm each stage of the buyer's journey and make each one of those stages remarkable. That would be remarkable, right? I'm a fan of that program. I think that tactic is an excellent idea. And that would certainly get my attention if a client or customer of a company I was considering reached out to me proactively to say, hey, I know you're thinking about this. Don't even spend another minute thinking about it. They're awesome. I, I mean, I would just feel like that's the, the bee's knees for sure. Yeah, you got to do it with a New York accent. Forget about it. Just hire them. Right. Or maybe we can just have our Philly accent. That's pretty, that's, that's good enough, right? It is, it is. All right, let's do a love it or leave it segment. So I gotta, gotta share my love it or leave it graphic. Okay, see that? Great graphic, great Love graphic. it or leave it. Okay, love it or leave it for this episode is content syndication. So let me explain it so that everyone's on the same page. And then Eric, I'll let you do love it or leave it. Okay. So content syndication is a tactic that can be used to, in an automated way, share your content with your target market. So for instance, if I have a white paper or a tip sheet or a video or any, any type of content, and I want to try to get it out there, I might agree to pay a certain amount of money for a content syndication platform or a content syndication company to push this content out across the internet in places where my prospect might be spending their time. So for instance, if I'm, if I fit the target profile and I tend to spend a lot of time on CNN, you might notice that sometimes CNN online has this set of content attached to it woven in with the stories that you may have wondered what's that doing here or who, what is that or why would I click on that that's where content syndication gets distributed and it's it's really everywhere if you have a a big website like CNN or Yahoo or, or any of these large websites with a lot of eyeballs they monetize those eyeballs by selling space for content syndicators so it might seem like a good opportunity to get your content out there, get people to click on it and drive people back to your website. Anything you want to add to that description just so we're all on the same page? Nope, that's very accurate. Okay, so go ahead, Eric, love it or leave it. Love it, love it. Why use a little baby microphone when I could use a megaphone and get my content out there? So one, I want to reach more people in my target market. Two, I'm leading with content. I'm not like, what can I do to put you into a Chevy today and driving them to the end of the journey? I'm starting with an offer that they could start to, uh, to uh, absorb. The content that I put out there should tell a remarkable story, enough maybe that drives it back to my website. Well, don't worry, because I got a killer website waiting for that when they come back with other conversion tools and nurture set up to really start to build a relationship with that client. So if the price is right and I'm getting a good return on investment, I love it, Mike. Yeah, I, I'm going to leave it. I, I don't like content syndication. It, it does have some application for some clients in some scenarios, but I just don't think uh, piggybacking on a general website is going to be effective. And I think you could do a lot more with that. In a, in a lot of cases, it, it's not a huge investment. The impressions and the clicks are not very expensive, but I just don't think it's targeted enough. I don't think it's specific enough. 
I think it's one of those tactics that people tend to lean on when they're not sure what else to do. So let's try some content syndication. We've run some experiments for clients and for Square Two just to see and make sure that it's not, we're not missing something. We haven't seen a ton of traction on it for really anybody. Maybe in the B2C space, it has some application. We do a lot of B2B here at Square Two. So maybe that's part of why I'm in the leave it category. But uh, for the people that we generally talk to and the kinds of budgets people bring to us and the kind of results people are looking for, I'm going to leave it. Well, I'll agree with your last part because I said as long as the ROI is there, right? So you got to track and test, which I'm sure will be on another episode of What's Wrong with Revenue. For sure, for sure it will. So wrapping up, thanks, Eric. Really appreciate your participation today. Love the questions. Keep the questions coming. The questions really help us uh, pr uh, provide some personalization to what kinds of issues you guys are dealing with. So you can always submit a question for the show live from the Q&A button at the bottom, but you can also go to our website in the What's Wrong With Revenue page and submit a question. There's a little form there. It's completely anonymous, and I guarantee you we will answer them just like we answered a ton of questions today. Tune in next week when Wednesday at 4 o'clock at the live cast, Eric and I will talk about what's wrong with revenue. The topic for that show is there's no effort to drive revenue with current customers. So we talked about that a little bit today with the delivery stage. We're going to go very, very, very deep in how you can drive revenue from mining your current customers. So while we covered that today for a few minutes, we'll dedicate the entire show next week to tactics and techniques that will allow you to have a much better relationship with your customers, drive much more uh, share of wallet and revenue from your customers. Thanks so much for joining us. Look for our show on YouTube. Thanks for joining us on Facebook. And you guys have a really nice rest of your day. Take it easy.